Today's episode is going to be a little different. We're going to look at disruption and crisis management from another angle. Much like our cyber episode in season one, this episode stands alone in its treatment of the relationship between risk and business continuity functions. Fiona Davidge is the Enterprise Risk Manager at the Wellcome Trust. She's had a career working in business continuity and risk at some big organisations including TfL and Thames Water. Considering Fiona's background, you'd be forgiven for thinking she'd have a process-heavy and model-orientated approach, but as we'll go on to find out, the opposite is true. Fiona is a big proponent of keeping things simple and not getting caught up in complex acronyms or bogged down in overworked processes. I think this might be rooted in Fiona's early experiences working within large critical infrastructure where some form of disruption is almost guaranteed as a daily occurrence. Let's start at the beginning with how Fiona got into business continuity. And a common theme for season two, the day-to-day incident management that goes on behind the scenes at the largest organisations. Thames Water is the UK's largest water utility. People will see in the press, you know, they are subject to every day some form of disruption to their service, uh, over to a mine, uh, it's stuff going on all the time. Um, but about a couple of times a month, there'd be a reasonably significant incident, which most companies would view almost as a crisis. But utility companies are actually incredibly good at managing managing disruptions because that's what they do and impact of that on customers. So lots of people think, oh, the blue lights and the army are very good at managing incidents. Well, yes, to a certain extent, but they always manage incidents to other people. Um, what utility companies actually are extremely good at is managing incidents which are disruption of their own service with very visible consequences. You know, you've got a burst water main all over the place or you flooded someone or customers don't have water or whatever and the media is involved. And they actually are, they have to be, very good at that. And Thames Water being the largest water utility, probably serving London as well, where there's always more visibility, had a particular way of doing things. They, were, they actually had a very mature and sophisticated emergency planning approach. Robust continuity capabilities seldom arrive organically. It takes work, usually under the guidance of a passionate internal champion for most organisations to achieve a good level of resilience. Investment commitment and advocacy at senior levels are key ingredients to successful continuity programs, largely because continuity must be specific and carefully tailored to be effective. That doesn't mean, as Fiona explained, huge documents and exhaustive scenario planning. In fact, Thames Water took a much more practical and minimal approach. It was all about decision making. In a day in which the average emergency procedure was like 200 pages long and no one ever looked at, Thames Water had 12 pages and it was very diagrammatic, it was very decision support, it was all about helping somebody make a decision in times of stress. And that at the time was actually quite an innovative approach. Mm. There was very little instruction of you do this or you don't do this. There were a few. There were a few red lines about water quality, health and safety. But the majority of the approach was, okay, get the facts, understand them, split them into different concepts. And and what do we do? How do I make this decision? What are the things I need to think about as the incident manager? Business continuity and disaster recovery are relatively recent concepts. I think the reason they have this reputation as difficult, complex and impractical is due in part to the heritage they share with traditional military incident and crisis management, an approach defined by 
exhaustive assessments with convoluted weighted scoring systems. Simplicity is a very powerful tool in crisis planning, and Thames Water were probably ahead of their time in adopting a brief, action-orientated approach to planning. We asked Fiona about the origin of checkbox continuity and how the approach for managing risks differs to planning for incidents. You know, I think maybe it came out of the military approach. You know, you, there's a list of things you do and you sort of tick them off. And there are places for checklists. There, you know, there are still places for checklists. But when you're managing something complex, and that rolls, and that's, this is still instant management, when you roll forward into risk, it's influenced how I do things now because it's less about assessments and ticking off and coming up with scores and all this sort of stuff. It's more about thinking things through. What's the consequences of this? What do I do about it? And there's no point in having so much information and so many pages of information that the poor users die before they ever get through it, you know, sort of, or they chuck it in the bin. Fiona's move from continuity to corporate risk management started at Thames Water. And it's a helpful organisation through which to understand the key differences between the two concepts. As Fiona explained, she moved away from managing the daily disruptions to Thames Water's services, and she moved into understanding and mitigating the corporate risks to Thames Water as an organisation. I was at Thames Water for nine years, and I moved from sort of incident management. We took on the business continuity programme because the incident management was more about the water and wastewater. We took on actually managing disruptions to the organisation. And then after a few years, the, the, the organisation said, oh, now there's this risk stuff you know, that's becoming more prominent. Um, we think you're the best team to take that on for us because, you know, you've got your fingers in all these pies across the organisation managing incidents. You understand risk. So actually my, the same boss, I, he was still my boss at that point, said, Fiona, I'm too near to retirement to learn about all this stuff you go off and learn what's meant by corporate risk management. And that's when the company actually funded me to do the Diploma in Risk Management through the Institute of Risk Management. So I did that and we created, using the same principles and approach of keep it straightforward and simple and, you know, it's about people making decisions to create the beginnings of the corporate risk process at Thames Waters. That's how I got into more risk management in the sense of the business rather than response to incidents. They are linked, but they are different. Whilst crisis management and risk management are adjacent activities, they have some very important differences separating them, as we'll go on to hear. One of the interesting ones I wasn't expecting was that they each have a unique relationship with uncertainty. This idea of known unknowns and unknown unknowns came up a few times in the interviews for this series, And whilst we tend to categorise crisis management as responding to situations with limited information, as Fiona pointed out, at least something has actually happened. Risk management, by definition, operates in a state of constant anticipation of things that haven't actually taken place. The problem, if you link them intrinsically, is they are different and they are trying to achieve different things. And um, there's a problem to true business risk management being seen as a responsive incident response type thing because in fact an incident has happened risk is uncertainty you are not sure about and they are different but they often end up linked and as but as long as there's an understanding that's not a problem this is an area we discussed a lot the distinction between risk incident management and business continuity 
and the shared responsibility between them all that's often wrapped up in a single job description at smaller organisations. And, as working habits change and we become less reliant on physical premises to maintain our continuity, the blending of these disciplines isn't necessarily to the detriment of any of them individually. For example, business continuity often sits in facilities, but the problem is then it's, it, the focus is about the building. The building is merely somewhere you sit in order to do what you do. And in fact, and it's happening here, as IT becomes more cloud-based, you actually don't have to even sit anywhere anymore. You can work in Starbucks, you can work at home, you can work sitting on the train. So the nature of an organisation and how it works is changing quite rapidly. So again, it comes back to what is it you want your organisation to be doing. After working at Thames Water, Fiona moved on to TFL, where her risk management focus deepened. Hearing Fiona discuss TFL's largest risks is a very neat summation of the key differences between risk and incident management. They're not what you might think. So that was interesting, going from one very big infrastructure provider to the public to another one. And there was that sort of familiarity of here was an organisation delivering a, a key critical public service just in time. It only gets noticed when it fails. The rest of the time we take it for granted. So there was a lot of familiarity with that. But I didn't do any of the incident and business continuity stuff there. There were very firmly teams, as you know, as you can imagine, with the London Underground, there was very much an incident management team. But I did know them and actually I knew them from my Thames Water days. So there was some, you know, they knew me and I knew them. But the focus was very much on the corporate risk process. So this was about the business that is London Underground rather than so much running the trains. What is necessary in order to run the organisation that is London Underground with all the, the challenges, the political challenges, the funding challenges, all these sort of things which of course the public don't see. It used to be interesting, I occasionally gave talks to students and I always used to start the talk by saying, what do you think is the biggest risks facing London Underground? And they'd always come up with the obvious fire, terrorism. And no, it was funding. It was decisions being made politically, which could change hugely. You know, you get a change in mayor or you get a change. And suddenly the whole direction the organisation was going might change because politically... You know, we were being told to. So, so those were much bigger issues for the directors because actually running the railway safely is part of the day job. Complex though it is, that used to surprise people. And they said, no, it's, it's not that. That's, you know, of course, terrorism is a threat, but it's not a risk to the survival of London Underground or it moving forward or it providing a service that fits the city in 20 years' time. And that's what the risk, and there I sort of say, that's the difference between risk management and incident management. Incident management is very much the here, the now, what's, what's the service we're providing? How do we manage a disruption? Risk management is much more about how do we have a competent organisation and a competent service in the future. Moving on from TFL, Fiona's move to the Wellcome Trust has come to neatly encapsulate the different risk and incident management functions across her career. Whilst she initially led the Wellcome Trust corporate risk management activities, she has since taken on the management of health and safety and business continuity as well. This role just happened to be advertised at the time I was looking and I could resonate very much with working in the charity sector. 
but it's a big charity with global reach and a large fund to spend. And when I came here, the focus was initially the corporate risk management, but I was involved in their business continuity program, but more as supporting it rather than leading it. But in the last year, I've both taken on leading the business continuity program, and I also now manage the health and safety function. I have come full circle. The reason behind that is they are all risk-based functions, or they should all be risk-based functions, where the focus is not so much the building we're in or the box we sit in. It's more about what are the objectives of the organisation, what are we here to achieve, and what can affect us achieving that. Health and safety and business continuity is very much the here and now, but the risk management being the the longer term. And actually, you look at a lot of good practice now, increasingly organisations are amalgamating those sorts of functions into some sort of risk-based approach. One of the reasons we liked talking to Fiona was because her ethos around simplicity and practicality aligned so closely with the initial purpose of the BCP cast, to make continuity and recovery concepts more accessible to everyone. Complexity often breeds paralysis, and as we talked in season one about the trap that small businesses often fall into, a feeling like, without the resources to run elaborate exercises or purchase expensive software, there was no point in trying at all. That's why it's nice to hear stories from practitioners like Fiona who, after having looked at some of the existing methods and models used by the large organisations, have determined they're overcomplicated and not fit for purpose. Instead, Fiona has simplified things to prioritise actions over abstract data points. Here's her approach to risk assessment. Okay, I'll go on record. There are some organisations and some industries that need detail. I mean, if you run a nuclear power station, I think we'd all like to know that you're doing a very advanced risk assessment of the you know, the liability and criticality of failure. I go back to London Underground, they they had to do complex risk assessments on safety. So there there is definitely some areas where there needs to be some complexity and technicality behind doing risk assessments and the consequences of that. That being said, I actually think those are quite niche areas. And the problem I believe with a lot of risk management is that using those methodologies or pseudo methodologies has crept into supporting decisions or telling people what they should or shouldn't be doing in areas where it's unnecessary. And the use of software has perhaps even made that worse because it becomes quite a formulaic thing. And, and people, I think, almost like con themselves into thinking they're, they're getting accurate answers by using these assessment techniques. And I just come back to the fact the definition of risk in the ISO standard is the effect of uncertainty on your objectives. So how can you accurately run a model on an uncertainty? That's the whole point. It's an uncertainty. I mean, the other definition, the common definition of risk is, you know, likelihood versus consequence, as if it's some exact formula, you know, five times three equals 15, or three times five equals 15, but that's different. The likelihood versus consequence Fiona's referring to here is a very common metric for incident planning. It's a five by five grid onto which emergency planners plot risks based on their likelihood of occurring versus their impact to the organisation. A major earthquake in London might be one likelihood, five impact, whilst major road or rail disruption would be closer to five likelihood, one impact. This exercise is certainly useful to plot out the heat map of the most pressing threats. 
but the majority of them will end up somewhere in the middle of the pack. As Fiona went on to say, it's important to not get lost in the weeds when totting up the scores. People pontificate on for ages about scoring and numbers, whether it's a 14, a 15 or a 16, becomes and, and so. Then they run out of energy and actually the real effort which should be on what do we do about it, they've sort of run out of energy because they've been deciding whether it's 14, 15 or 16. To circumvent any short-sighted debates over abstract scoring, Fiona simplified this exercise even further by reducing the grid to 3 by 3. I think we do need some assessment and at the trust we do, but when I came here there was a 5 by 5 scoring matrix. So 5 by 5 is 25 choices. There was the typical, you know, scoring of what the financial consequence, uh, personal consequence, various levels of consequence, and then you worked it out on a grid. And, and that's fine. I mean, it's actually, that's quite a, it's not strongly quantitative, but it's giving you something to compare apples and pears, because you do need something to say, this risk over here, how does it stack up against this risk over there? But I don't know, I just came out of a meeting one day where, I don't know, somebody had been debating whether it was in that square or that square, and I thought, oh, this is ridiculous. You know, what, does, it, does it matter that much which square it's in within the scale of things? And I just turned around to a colleague and said, you know what, I think we ought to reduce from a 5x5 five five to a 3x3. Three three. And she, she said, that's an excellent idea for you. <laughs> um, you know, it's just one of those moments where you suddenly think something, you think, oh, actually, that could be quite useful. And it was funny, I, I then obviously had to speak to some senior people and say, well, if I simplified the matrix, and everyone went, oh, great, you know, fantastic. That would be really great, Fiona, please do. And obviously, I then articulated in a three by three matrix some examples, because that, that's what you're doing. You're trying to paint a picture of potential outcomes. So it'll cost us 10,000, it'll cost us 100,000, it'll cost us 10 million, it'll cost us 100 million. And that's that's mildly painful or that's, ah, ouch. And really, that's all you're doing in that type of scoring. But I just made it into three. Of course, reducing the complexity of an exercise only works if you're also improving the clarity of its output. So we wanted to know what Fiona's new categories look like. She took us through how she applies this simplified risk matrix model to the complex business of corporate risk. Well, we have various ones in different ways of assessment, but at the corporate level, we look at financial, but that's there we look at it in two ways, the effect on the investment portfolio, and there we articulate it in percentage of loss or gain. So, you know, 1%, 2%, 10%, because we're looking at a big wadge of investment funding. But then at a financial level, we look at the impact on the business budgets that are here and now. So, you know, X million, it costs us to run the trust, precise amounts of money because that's because they're two very different things although they both relate to money we look at strategic objectives so will the impact on this completely derail an objective have a hindrance on an objective or very little because obviously that is really important because some, sometimes things don't cost money well they can cost money but actually the main impact is it completely affects how we might want to achieve what to us is a key thing we've said we want to achieve but the, the point is we say to people when you look at what you're thinking might happen. It could be one, it could be two, it could be three of these types of impact. It could be in different levels of the scoring for each one. It could be a small cost, but it could be a high reputation. So that's one of them. Reputation obviously is a key one. You score it according to whatever is the highest impact. But then in, when you articulate what the risk is, you might in your description sort of say that whatever. Fiona's approach is all about getting the participants of an exercise 
in this case the risk owners at the welcome, to the point where they can make a meaningful decision about mitigation. And in some cases, as we've just heard, that means painting in broad enough strokes to make fundamentally unknown risks more tangible. Accuracy remains important, but so does momentum. If you can categorise your risks and roughly quantify a few tiers of their potential impact, then it becomes much easier to extract a few different proportionate responses. At the very least, they provide a platform from which to adapt new responses as circumstances inevitably deviate from their anticipated counterparts. The definitions of risk and continuity have been a little permeable this episode, as we've moved back and forth between incident response and corporate risk. And we're going to end today continuing on that theme to think about how we can squeeze a little more value from the risk management mindset by applying it to other areas of the business. Fiona's found that embedding an understanding of risk into people's decision-making produces a kind of trickle-down effect of resilience across the whole organisation. Widespread, risk-based thinking means that projects in particular become de-risked from their conception. I mean, in a perfect world, I'd say everyone should use a risk-based thinking all the time, but then they might be, oh, of course you would say that. But actually, no, seriously, I think any management activity of any type, but particularly projects, projects have, they should have a particular raison d'etre. You know, they're there to drive forward something, to produce something, be it in the simplest form, a building or an exhibition or an initiative or something. So there's the typical project triangle or project managing. You know, there's a cost associated with that and you should know what that is. There's, there's a time frame. It's got to be done in two years to meet such and such a deadline. And then there's the objectives. What is it we're trying to get out of this? The classic project pyramid. And, and really what risk management plugged into that is saying, again, this back to, but what are the uncertainties around that? Is it going to cost me 10 million? Or actually, I don't know. It could be 11. It could be nine. It could be 12. 12 isn't a problem, but 15 is. Time, you know, oh, actually, am I going to achieve this in two years? But actually, I've got to hit that deadline. So one where most people fall down is, have we really understood the objectives? I mean, in IT systems, is a classic one here. People haven't defined what they want and they get carried away and they, they put everything in there, including the kitchen sink, when actually you could get away with doing this, this and this. And suddenly in sort of three outputs, there's 15 and the organisation doesn't. So risk management should be built right in from the beginning. And it's not saying, no, we don't do this. It's saying, understand the uncertainties around what you're trying to achieve and what can we put in place very early on to mitigate them or manage them. Or maybe we do something in a different way than we think we're going to do now. That's happening here at the Trust. You know, we, we've got some very big programmes we've got planned, we're planning. So it's very important to us that we achieve the objectives that those are set, but they're extremely complex objectives, they're ambitious objectives. Their objectives with several partners, where that's always that's always becomes more problematic because you're not direct, you know, they're partners, not people you control. Risk management should be really about saying, open your eyes, look at the issues, don't ignore them, uh, embrace them, 